Have you ever considered the power of a smile? The power of a smile. Look at the person next to you, and if you have to, fake it real good, but give them a good smile, all right? <laughs> Smiles have a way of transforming a day for us. They can transform a relationship. They can change the whole atmosphere of a room. They can break tension, bring joy. The incredible power of a smile. They tell us that it takes more muscles in the face to produce a frown than it does a smile. Jesus was born and came to this earth in part to put a smile in our heart that shows up on our face. And that smile in our heart that shows up on our face is called the joy of the Lord. We have been in a series of messages for the month of December called the Prayers of Christmas. And today we're going to continue that journey with Mary in a prayer of joy. We saw last week how the angel Gabriel came to her with a message that you were going to bear the Messiah. And what a tremendous message that was. But Mary had to choose to respond to that message. And if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning with verse 46. We are going to look at Mary's response to what the angel has said to her. Now, as difficult as it may be for us to sort of wrap our minds around this, in those days, girls would, and, and guys would get married as young as 14 years of age. Now, for all of our teenagers, don't get any ideas from that, okay? Saying that, well, you know, I'm going to get married as a teenager because I'm following the biblical mandate of how it should be done. But they got married back in those days very early in life. Life expectancy was much less than it is today. So we think Mary was probably around 15 to 19 years of age at the very oldest when this message came to her from the angel Gabriel that you were going to be impregnated by the power of the Holy Spirit and you were going to bear the Messiah. Now, Mary had a decision she had to make at that point. Am I going to receive what the angel is telling me? Am I going to receive this message? Am I going to be obedient to it? Or am I going to say, Lord, uh, I just think this is a really nice thing, and it, maybe you could honor some other girl with this, but I really don't want to deal with all the implications of this. Uh, it's probably going to ruin my engagement to Joseph. It's going to trash my reputation here in this small town of Nazareth. People are never going to believe me when I tell them that, A, I'm impregnated by the Holy Spirit. They're going to say, man, you must have stayed up a long time last night dreaming up that one. And then when I tell them it's the Messiah, they're going to be saying, we've been waiting and waiting for hundreds of years, and God's chosen to use a teenage girl through which to bring the Messiah. Really? Come on. In the city of Nazareth, if we were in Jerusalem, yeah, we could believe that. If you, we were in the city of Rome, we could believe that. But in a little tiny Nazareth, you know, nobody's going to believe me, so I'm just going to get trashed up one side and down the other. So God, go find somebody else to take on this task. She didn't do that. She had the exact opposite attitude, and that was, Lord, whatever you say, I'm going to be obedient to it. And then what we're going to look at today is this prayer, this explanation, if you will, of quiet yet majestic praise to God 
and joy of what God was doing in her life. Now, in spite of all that she was anticipating that was going to come her way, that potentially was going to be very difficult, she had a joy. And her joy was grounded in what she anticipated God was going to do. Joy is always grounded, not in our circumstances. If you and I wait on our circumstances to have joy, our joy is going to be like riding a roller coaster. We're going to be up one day and down the next. We're going to be up one hour and down the next. Rather, the joy in prayer is based on the anticipation of what God is going to do because it is based on faith. I am believing God to fulfill His promises. I am believing God for what He is going to do. I am believing Him even though I don't see the reality of what He said He was going to do. And that's what she begins to do as she begins to breathe out and to give this meditation on what God is going to do. It is very calm. It is very majestic. It models the Psalms and the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel. She prays out of the prayers of the Old Testament Scriptures. I don't want to emphasize that. As you move, we move through this, and we will nick this today and next week, you're going to see that Mary is praying out of her understanding and her teaching and literally quoting almost at points the Old Testament Scriptures. So often we say, I don't know how to pray, and I don't know what to say in prayer. Let me give you a hint. Just go to the Bible and pray the prayers of the Bible. Just go to the book of Psalms and pray the Psalms. You don't even have to come up with the words at that point. Just pray those psalms. And that's what she's basically doing here. Now, you will often hear this passage of Scripture from Luke 1 referred to as the Magnificat. It is taken from the Latin of this particular passage of Scripture, which we translate, my soul magnifies the Lord. And that's where they come up with that term from. So if you hear that term referred to it as Mary's Magnificat, that's where it's coming from, the Latin translation of the verb to magnify. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, and we are going to begin with verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now next week we're going to continue in this. We're going to look at verses 46 through 49 today. The prayer of joy is a prayer that is prayed by faith, anticipating what God is going to accomplish. Prayed in faith, anticipating what God is going to accomplish. Now, the prayer of joy, my sermon outline is contained in your bulletin. Please follow along if you will. The prayer of joy focuses on the Lord. When you and I pray and we pray in joy and we pray out of the overflow of joy or we in prayer move to the place of joy, we're going to do so because our focus is not again on the circumstances that are around us. Our focus is on the Lord. Notice how she begins this prayer, verse 46. She says, my soul, the essence of who she is, the depths of who she is. The Hebrew word for soul is a fascinating word. It literally means empty. Empty. 
my soul, that empty part of me, praises the Lord, magnifies the Lord. Now, the word magnify is a fascinating word. It means to make something great inside of you. It means to see something and to begin as you see it and you look into it and you experience it to see the greatness of it and the value of it. So the longer you look at it and the more you consider it, the greater the value you see that is within it. I remember when I was about to get engaged to uh, Helen, I went to a jeweler. And the jeweler, I told him, I said, I've gotten engaged and I need to get an engagement ring. And he didn't just walk over there and say, okay, here's a bunch of diamonds, go for it. What he did was he said, I want to take and explain to you what a diamond looks like. And so he took a diamond out and he put it underneath a microscope. And he said, I want you to look through this microscope and look into the diamond. And I saw the structure of a diamond that I had never seen before. It looked like to me like glass mountains. It was absolutely breathtaking. And then he began to explain diamonds to me and the structure. I was looking into them. And my understanding of diamonds and just being a shiny rock began to change tremendously. And this idea of magnifying is that I don't just sort of take a drive-by look at the Lord. She is saying, I'm looking into God, who He is, what He is doing, what He is seeking to accomplish. Now follow me on this. It is the idea when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She's saying, the more I look into the Lord, the more I understand Him and appreciate Him, the more I'm looking into what He is doing and what He is accomplishing and who He is, He is filling my soul. That idea of magnify is to fill something up in yourself because of the value. And she is saying, the Lord is filling my soul. My soul that is empty and created by God as empty is being filled with the presence and the power and the work and the majesty of God Almighty. And you see, when you and I pray the prayer of joy, what we are doing is we are looking into the Lord, into what He does, into what He is accomplishing, and He is literally, by the greatness of who He is, filling our soul. And you see, if God's not filling my soul, then I'm going to go look for something else to fill my soul. Because we cannot stand living with an empty, hungering soul. He created us to hunger and thirst after Him. And she is praying this prayer of joy because she's saying, He is filling my soul with a deeper experience and satisfaction of who He is. Praise. I want you to write this down. I think it's in your notes. Praise births joy. Praise births joy. If I want joy... Begin to praise Him. See, this is what we tend to do. We tend to wait for the joy to drive the worship, to drive the praise. It's the opposite. I begin to praise Him for who He is. I begin to praise Him for what He's doing. And as I praise Him, the praise 
begins to birth to joy. So when you and I get up on the mornings and we get up on the wrong side of the bed and we've had a, you know, we're just going into the day and we are not happy or excited or junk starts happening to us through the day or we're going through a rough season in life and we don't have much joy in our lives, what do we do? Don't go around and try to produce joy. If you and I do that, we'll just get mad, frustrated, and burn out, etc. Rather, Lord, I'm going to praise you, not for the circumstances that are around me because right now the circumstances around me are bumming me out. What I'm going to rather do, Lord, is I'm going to praise you for who you are. And we're going to go into that in more detail in a minute as she begins to bring out this prayer. But I'm just going to praise you, Jesus, for who you are. And I'm going to praise you, Jesus, for what you've done. And I'm going to praise you, Jesus, for what you're doing right now. And I'm going to bless you, Lord, for what I anticipate you are going to do. Verse 47, she says, My soul and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now the word rejoices there speaks of a deep inner joy. This is not something that just surfaces. This is not something I'm just sort of forcing out and faking it. It is the idea of a deep-seated joy. It is not something that I work up into some kind of emotional state. That I sort of get on an emotional high for a while and I've got all kinds of joy. This is rather a deep-seated inner joy from deep inside of me that comes from a deeper experience of who he is. The deeper my experience with him, the higher will be my praise and the greater will be my joy. I'm going to say that again. The deeper my experience is with Jesus, the higher my praise is going to be and the greater my joy is going to be. Now she says here, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The idea of soul and spirit, it's what's called Hebrew parallelism. And what the Hebrews love to do is they would say the same thing in slightly different ways in sentences that sort of paralleled each other. And that was their way of sort of packing a double punch into what they were saying. So she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Remember she was Jewish, so she was going to be praying out of the Hebrew tradition. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit, parallel there, rejoices in God my Savior. In other words, all that I am is reflecting the Lord and experiencing Him in praise and worship. Now, she moves next to say, my spirit rejoices in who? God my Savior. The word Savior in the scriptures always speaks of the concept of deliverance. I am rejoicing in the one who is my deliverer. Now think about that for you and I. What drives our praise? What drives our joy? He is my deliverer. Now let's talk for a moment about where deliverance happened. And then we're going to look at where deliverance is happening. And then where deliverance will happen. First of all, He is our Savior. Our deliverance was secured from sin, from guilt, from shame. Our deliverance to Him was secured, marked down, became a reality. 2,000 years ago on the cross and sealed three days later in the resurrection. I can't stress that enough. 
Deliverance is not something that God has to accomplish. It's something that He already accomplished. The victory was won on the cross 2,000 years ago. It is a lie of Satan who tries to tell us that we got to work for deliverance, that we got to make deliverance happen. Jesus beat the devil, beat our sin, beat our shame, and beat our guilt when he took it to the cross 2,000 years ago. So he is my deliverer already because of what he secured. Then, three days after he took it all on the cross, he sealed the deal, if you will, when he walked out of the grave because his resurrection said so much. But one of the things that his resurrection said is that everything that I did on the cross is validated and is secured and is finished. And I walked away from all that stuff as the victor. And you see, my task and my walk as a believer is simply to walk in the victory that Jesus already secured. It's not a victory that I create or work up. It is a victory that I can choose to live in. Now, He empowers us by the Holy Spirit whom He has placed inside of us to walk in that victory and to enjoy that victory. So, first of all, my joy is anchored in the cross and in the resurrection. Second, my victory is secured in what, and my joy is secured in what Jesus has done and is doing in my life. He is delivering me every day from the power of sin, from guilt, from just messing it up, from a lack of purpose. He's delivering me to Himself. And you see, in that deliverance means that I don't ever get over what Jesus did in saving me. The worst place any of us ever get is when we get over. We think we get over what Jesus did in our lives. No, we don't ever get over what it meant for Jesus to save us and is saving us right now. And then his deliverance is in the future. Whatever tomorrow brings, I know it will bring deliverance and the power of deliverance. Whatever eternity brings and whenever you and I face eternity, I know as a believer that the most basic aspect of it is He's going to deliver us. You see, at death, the believer is delivered from a body that is subject to sickness and death to be delivered to a body that is no longer subject to sickness and to death. I am delivered from this world to Him, and I am delivered from what is temporary to eternal, what is perishable to what is imperishable, and I am delivered from a temporary journey here to an eternal journey there. That is the idea of the future deliverance that He has for us. He is God my Savior. Every day I am delivered to a deeper relationship with Jesus. I can't say that enough. Every day. We are delivered. You see, he's not just interested in getting us over the sin thing. He's interested in getting us into the deeper relationship with him. Now, the prayer of joy is focused on Jesus. Secondly, in verse 48, the prayer of joy comes from a humble heart. Notice what she says, verse 48. He, the Lord, has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. 
She's sitting in the tiny town of Nazareth. At max, we think, at 1,600 residents at the time. She is a young teenager. She's engaged to be married to a carpenter who weren't exactly known for knocking down big bucks. She says, I got a humble estate. Doesn't impress anybody. But you looked upon me. Folks, let me say this. God is not impressed by our talents and abilities. He can outdo us any day of the week, any hour of the week. All we got to do is walk outside and look at this world he created and see how he can outdo us. What impresses God is humility. What gets God's attention is humility. And you see, humility enables us to see the greatness of God. Pride fuzzes us up in seeing the greatness of God. Everybody in here that's wearing some type of eyeglasses or contacts, if you get junk on your glasses or your contacts, what happens? You can't see as well. And the more stuff that piles up on there, the worse it gets. I'm one of these types, I I hate fooling with my glasses. And so I will let it build up and build up and build up because I do not like, because for some reason when I try to clean glasses, I just smear it. Instead of cleaning it. I don't know if any of y'all got the problem or not. But I just smear it around. And sometimes I make matters worse. I've had days I've been thinking I saw stuff that really didn't exist. That's because it existed on my glasses. And didn't exist out there. But when you clean it off. You can start to see. And this idea here. Is that when we allow the Lord. We see God in humility. We see him for who he is. When I've got pride in my life. It begins to smear my view of him. And the more pride I've got, the more the view of, my great, of his greatness gets smeared. And that's why God works overtime to try to keep us humble so that we can see him and we can experience him for who he is. Augustine, one of the great thinkers of the church, said these words, If we would know God's ways, humility is first, second, and third. If we would know God's ways, humility is first, Second and third. Then she says, He's remembered the humble estate of his servant. All generations will call me blessed. She's looking beyond the present. Because Mary was intelligent enough to know that the present generation as the word got out that she was pregnant, was not going to stand up in Nazareth and probably call her blessed. In fact, it would not surprise me at all that it was not recorded in the Scripture she didn't get blessed out. Can you imagine her walking through Nazareth and people know she's engaged to Joseph, but it's not his baby, and what they're saying as she walks through town and what she knows and she walks through town, people probably think and saying about her. They're not calling her blessed. Oh, there goes the mother and the Messiah. They weren't thinking that. But she looks past that to the future, and she says, all generations going down the road in the future are going to call me blessed. Why does she say that? Because when she looks into her future, what she sees long term is the work of God. In other words, all she's got in her future is the Lord. And folks, when you and I get to that place of being able to pray the prayer of joy 
All we got in our future is Jesus. That's what we got in our future is Jesus. She says, he who is doing this, verse 49, is mighty. Notice the tense of the verb. He is mighty. She doesn't say he used to be mighty. She doesn't say he's just going to be mighty in the future. She's saying he is mighty right now. Part of the idea of that is what he did for my ancestors in the past, he's doing even greater things right now. He is mighty. She's anticipating what the Lord is going to do in her life. I want to go back to that present tense verb. He is mighty. Right now in my life, he is mighty. How many of us live in the current present might of God? We tend to live in the past of what God has done. We talk about what He did in the past. And we may live somewhat in the future talking about what we anticipate someday He's going to do. But how about today? How about this season of my life? Is He mighty today? Am I seeing and am I experiencing the might of God today? Let me encourage you to do something. Have a prayer journal. And just journal what you see God doing in your life every day. It will surprise us the might of God that's being seen and experienced and how God is working around us every day. He's doing great things, she says. He is mighty right now. What she is saying is this. I am seeing and I am experiencing. And when I look into the future, I am anticipating the reign of God. Now, have you ever gotten up really early in the morning before the sun begin to rise. And you go out to see the sun comes up, sun coming up. The sun just doesn't pop over the horizon all at one time. It gradually begins to come up on the horizon. The sun rays become stronger and stronger and cast more light and more heat. That's the way that we are experiencing the reign of God. It's not all done like that. It's gradually coming up on the horizon. It is shining out progressively more and more. And that's what she's saying here when she says, He is mighty and He has done great things. And then she says, verse 49, Holy is His name. Now, I'm not going to try to preach on the holiness of God to a great extent this morning because that's coming in a few weeks in another sermon. But when it says here that his name is holy, let me I just hit some highlights here of the idea of God's name being holy. First off, it says his name is holy. You'll see this term name used over and over and over again in Scripture. When it talks about God's name is holy, God's name is holy. It means the totality of who God is. The term name means the totality. It speaks of the totality of who God is. Just like if I call your name, I'm speaking about all that you are. 
If I call your name, you, you, know, you automatically think about that person and all that they are. Well, this is, when she says, holy is his name, she's seen. And all that God is, he is holy. His majesty is holy. His love is holy. His joy is holy. His power is holy. All that God is, is first and foremost holy. Holy is his name. And what does it mean for his name to be holy? What does it mean for him to be holy? It is the idea of the majesty and grandeur of God and the purity of God. We lived in Galax about twice a year. We would go out to the Blue Ridge Parkway. There was a mountain out there that they have a trail that you can go all the way down to the side of the mountain. And you can literally go down the side of the mountain. And then you can come up the side of the mountain. Now, I'm going to confess to you, going down the side of the mountain is a whole lot easier than going up the side of the mountain. There were several things that you experience when you track down that mountain and you track up that mountain. Once you get back into the mountain, there's a stream there. The stream is pure and the stream is cold. A pure, clean mountain stream. You can't find water, in my opinion, that's any purer and cleaner and fresher than a mountain stream. That's the idea of the holiness of God. He is absolute, total purity. Refreshing purity. Invigorating purity. Now, when you got to the top of the mountain, you could look at the mountain and you could see the grandeur of the mountain. The height of it, the beauty of it. I mean, I can't know more adjectives to throw in there. And this idea of the holiness of God is the majesty of God and the wonder of God and all God is. One final thing. When you started up that mountain, and the more you walked up the side of the mountain, the more you experienced the power and the strength of that mountain. Because the more steps you took, the more you harder you breathed. And you're sucking some wind by the time you're going two-thirds way up side of that mountain. I can remember many times getting about two-thirds up side of that mountain and stopping and panting and saying, this mountain's a whole lot bigger than I am. And this mountain's pulling about every ounce of juice out of me trying to get up the side of it. And as you got a little bit high, you'd start thinking, this mountain is overwhelming me with how tall it is, with how rugged it is, with the majestic power that this mountain has got. But the only way I'm experiencing that is I'm walking up the side of the mountain. When she's saying here, holy is his name, she is saying, I am walking up the side of the mountain of who God is. Here in this little house, in this little town, I am experiencing the freshness and the vitality of God. I am seeing and beginning to catch glimpses of the grandeur of what He is doing and about to do. And as I experience Him, I am literally panting. Because it's taken everything out of me to experience the power and the awesomeness of God. Folks, the problem so often, the reason we don't have the joy that He wants for us is we think God is a molehill instead of a majestic mountain. We treat Him like He's too small and too weak to handle our problems, let alone take on 
saving folks and changing folks. We think he's too weak and small, not only to change our culture and our society, but we think he's often too weak and small to even take on one life that we're encountering. That's because we see him as so small. When I was living in Virginia Beach, if you go to Virginia Beach, the highest place in Virginia Beach is called Mount Trashmore. Back in the 60s, they took a whole ton of trash, piled it up, put dirt all over it. I'm making it a lot simpler than it was, but put dirt all over it and made it into this mountain. Well, it's really a glorified hill is what it is. I don't even know if you call it a hill, but for Virginia Beach, you know, it's, it's, it's big time. So we called it Mount Trashmore because it's a mountain made out of trash. And I've been up on that thing. You can climb it in no time flat. It's no big deal. It won't cause you to breathe hard or anything like that. You go out these mountains out here in the Blue Ridge and the Smokies. They make Mount Trashmore look like not even a molehill. Like a little pile of dirt in your backyard. What is the Lord like to us? Is he like the little pile of dirt in the backyard who can't handle much of anything or is he like one of those smoky mountains? You see, that is what she's saying. The God I serve and the God who's spoken to me is the God who has the majesticness and the purity and the beauty and the power of a mountain. But you don't know that until we see it, we experience it, and we all felt it. Richard Smallwood wrote a song called You're the Center of My Joy. I want to read the words to you. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. All that's good and perfect comes from you. You're the heart of my contentment, the hope for all I do. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. When I've lost my direction, you're the compass for my way. You're the fire and light when nights are long and cold. In sadness, you are the laughter. That shatters all my fears. When I'm all alone, your hand is there to hold. Oh, Jesus, you're the center of my joy. All that's good and perfect comes from you. You're the heart of my contentment. The hope for all I do. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. Let's pray. Lord, We want to pray prayers that, Lord, just come as the overflow of your joy. The overflow of experiencing who you are and what you are. Uh, Lord, to experience the purity of who you are, the majesty of who you are. And, Lord, the anticipation of what you're going to do. We don't see it yet, but we're living and standing on the promises of what you say you're going to do. And, Lord, we look for that and we anticipate that. Lord, teach us by our experience of you what it means, Lord, to pray in joy. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you need to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, in just a moment as we sing, I want to invite you to walk the aisle and make that public and trust Him. If you're here and you've made that decision, but you need to make it public and need to to follow Him in believer's baptism, we invite you to come. The folks here would love to rejoice in that decision and encourage you. Every person Jesus called, He called publicly. Because we have to say 
this business of following Jesus isn't a secret. I want to identify with him. Say I'm his follower. You sense the Lord's inviting you to come and be part of our church family. We invite you to come. Lord, have your way with us in these moments of invitation, we pray. In the powerful, precious, and holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.